beautiful. And what I want to know is, what is really good in your life today? I'm Kia, and this is another episode of the Female Veterans Podcast. Today, I have a very special guest with me. From the minute I read her story on Facebook, I knew that I needed to talk to her. And once I did, I realized that she was warm and sweet and funny and kind and just just another amazing person. And I have actually been really, really blessed to meet some of the most amazing women. But it's not surprising because we are all veteran sisters. So today, please join me in welcoming my guest, Callie. And I want to say welcome to this little podcast, Callie. Thank you for coming. Oh, absolutely. I'm glad to be here, Miss Kia. So my first question for you is, why did you join the military? Well, I joined the military so kind of like some other people. I was a single parent. Um, I didn't have a lot of job or opportunities for my child living in a small town in West Texas. And mm-hmm. so I just took the, the, the best opportunity I could find, which is the U.S. military, to provide for my child. So no, That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Anyway. So um, when did you go in? I joined the military in uh, June of 2002. How long did you serve for? I did active duty for about four years, and then I was uh, with the Texas State Guard for about 11 years almost. Wow, that's a long time. It's yeah. quite a dedication to serving your country. Well, Thank on you top of that, goodness. I was also you know, mil- a military spouse, too, sometimes on my, my part-time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, everybody knows how I feel about military wives. I feel like they are the backbone of the services and military spouse husbands as well. Um, so what was boot camp like for you? Ooh, girl, <laughs> that's an interesting one. And, uh, I think you have to kind of take into perspective, um, how I was raised. I was raised in a small town in West Texas, about mm-hmm. 300 people. Wow. Uh, my graduating class was 12. Oh my, uh, that is tiny. Uh, the diversity within that city was zilch nothing. (laughs) And so I can remember, uh, when I joined boot camp, like just the sheer diversity of the people Mm -hmm. that were in, in boot camp with me was so fascinating to me. I wanted to know everything, um, and just talk to people. Sometimes that was received well, and sometimes that wasn't. (laughs) Right. Uh, A learning curve. There's a learning curve. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And then uh, my father and my my uncle and my grandfather were all military. So before I went in, uh, their best piece of advice to me was like, keep your mouth shut. Do what you're told. Come home. (laughs) And come home. That's a good advice. (laughs) I was uh, the only, I'm actually the only. Yeah, absolute only female uh, veteran within my family. So, of course, um, that adds another layer onto Mm -hmm. um, the history or the history, if you will. You know, that's why they said, just be quiet. Come home. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Be quiet. Come home. That makes a lot of sense. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So did you um, make a lot of friends in boot camp? Do you have any memories of boot camp that are that stick out in your mind? Um, I really, really tried to embrace that, be quiet, get it over with, uh, mentality. I did have, uh, my battle buddy Vasquez. Um, she and I have actually kept up with each other throughout many years. Um, 
she was a, a Puerto Rican girl from New York. And so from New York city and then this very small West Texas town that I was from the, the, you know, the gap between us was, was huge. So she and I would always have conversations and I was asking her like, why do you do this? Why do you do that? Aww. And she would do the same to me. Like, why do you do this? Why do you do that? And, uh, it was, it was a pretty interesting, and, and I'll have to say, I'll have to tell you this one too, because the town that I grew up with is predominantly white. There might be like a 10% Hispanic population, but mm-hmm. that's it. And so, um, even, uh, uh, black cultures, I had no idea. And so I can remember one day in the barracks, these, uh, the black girls were perming their hair and I'm like, Oh girl, I know everything about a perm. I can get some good curl going in your hair. And they're like, you know <laughs> We don't perm our hair for curl, right? And I'm like, what? Right. wait a minute. <laughs> that's the cutest story I've heard in a minute. <laughs> that's an adorable boot camp story. I know. I was thinking, oh, I'm going to be popular because I could do a real tight curl. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what did I like, know? We have those. Right. <laughs> But for me, coming out of a, 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 a culture where that was not anything that I knew, yeah. it was so fascinating to me. Um, and I just wanted to absorb like all of this information that I was getting, not only about military, but also about cultures, because that wasn't something mm-hmm. that I knew about. Wow. I can just imagine how... like mind-blowing that would have been to go from such a teeny tiny little space where everyone's like kind of like you to going to this huge different world where there's a lot of everything and it must have felt like there was so much to learn you know about everyone and everything and everywhere it's pretty exciting it was very exciting, but it was also um, very frightening too. Because that, you know, that was the first time in my life that I'd left my parents, left my mm-hmm. family. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd traveled a little bit within the Texas, New Mexico, Mexico region, but never outside of that. Mm-hmm. And so to be thrown on a plane to South Carolina by yourself um, was very, wow. very daunting. <laughs> yeah, pretty darn scary, you know. And even like camps and stuff as a kid, our camps were run by the church, the local church Mm -hmm. group, like a local um, uh, school district. So it was always somebody that we knew. So that was absolutely the very first time in my life that I'd not been with either a family member or somebody that was close to it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I remember going to boot camp too. It was really frightening. They actually put me on a train because I was going from Pennsylvania to. Chicago to Illinois and they put me on a train so I didn't even fly and I just remember being on that train the whole way there and I was listening to this old um Courtney Love whole CD (laughs) the whole way there and I kept thinking she had this song called you know I I forget what it's called but I know the chorus goes I made my bed I'll lie in it and I just thinking this is what I've done. I have made my bed. Now I'm going to lie in it. I'm off to boot camp. And then I remember getting there. I got there alone and had to find my way to the base. And I go walking in the front day, front gate and I see all of these, um, they call them Smurfs in the Navy because of the blue uh, sweatsuits that we have to wear when you first 
first get in. You wear those sweatsuits for a minute before you get your uniforms. And um, I could just see them in formation marching all around. And I just thought, where am I? I am not in Kansas anymore. (laughs) Just like in a whole nother world. And that it was, that it was. and I met so many diverse girls that it was just crazy, like girls from all over the place. And I was one of those girls answering questions and asking questions too. Like, you know, and we we formed a lot of like really special friendships during boot camp. I, I mean, it was tough, mm-hmm. but I really loved that aspect of the time that we got to like talk and ask questions like that and get to know mm-hmm. each other and, and like learn about each other too. It was really cool. Oh, absolutely. And I'm still like that. Uh, I'm maybe a bit of a nosy body, I guess, you know, <laughs> something like I don't understand what's going on here. Um, I'm very quick to ask questions because I mean, if you're, if you're not learning and you're not evolving as a person, like what are you doing? Stagnating. <laughs> Stagnating. Just, just there. And, um, it's funny cause you know, um, the, the unit here that I'm in El Paso, um, I've been with them for like 10 some years. And so they all know me. And it's funny because they can actually kind of predict me now. They're like, if they see something abnormal coming up, they'll be like, oh no, she's going to say something. (laughs) 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 And they almost get afraid of what I'm going to say because it's like, they know that I'm going to (laughs) say something. That's sad. So my next question for you is, what was your military experience like? That is going to be a rough question because I think it actually changed throughout uh, my life. It wasn't like this is how it was. It was terrible the whole time. Um, I think it, and in anything in life, you have periods where you have good times and you have bad times and you have struggles and you have um, achievements throughout. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was the same thing for me, you know, back uh, 2002, 2003, um, I would say that was like a really rough period. I was still adjusting to being in the military and then also adjusting to being in a cavalry unit within the army, which is um, a unit that has very, very few females. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, it was at Fort Knox that I was sexually assaulted. And so uh, being in a military unit that is predominantly male, trying to find resources and assistance after something like that happens is zero to none almost. Um, mm-hmm. And I won't even say that it was a individual failure. I think it was a failure as a whole within the military that right. they just did not know how to react to that thing. Yeah. They did not know how to deal with um, those situations and they did not know how to help people in those situations. Um, and so I always say like, that was a very, very lonely time in uh, while I was in the military because there was, there was nothing and they didn't know how to react and they reacted, I think the best that they could, but it was in my opinion, very shitty. Excuse my language. Sorry. Um, it was very, um, it was a very bad reaction. Um, and so, but, you know, eventually I did, um, work past those situations and in, in later military years, it's been really great for me because I actually get to be the person that I wish I would have had back then. Oh, that's amazing. Um, yeah. Cause some of those I have a question. I have a question before you go on. Okay. So how long did the assault take place after you were out of boot camp? Out of boot camp, I want to say it was a little over a year and a half out of boot camp. 
Mm-hmm. So you were you were like doing at your duty station, and, yeah. and I'd that- actually done, I did my first year after boot camp. I did overseas, and so I'd already done overseas time and come back to the states and was mm-hmm. at Fort Knox um, when this happened. Well, what did you do there at Fort, at Fort Knox? Fort Knox. Um, mm-hmm. I was with One Sixteenth Calf. Um, I was uh, logistics personnel. Mm-hmm. So, and you worked with all men and then the assault happened. Okay. My next question about that is how do you think that the military failed? I think it was from like the very second that I reported because the very second that I reported um, to the military police, mm-hmm. they said, Oh, well, this isn't something that we deal with. We're going to call your chain of command in to deal with this. Mm-hmm. Well, no, it's not because that is a criminal act. Mm-hmm. Uh, it should have been treated as a criminal act from the beginning. Um, but it wasn't for, I don't know, I can't explain the reason why it wasn't handled as a criminal act, but it should have been treated as such from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead of taking it as a criminal act, they called the chain of command because we were both in the same unit. We were both in the same chain of command. Mm-hmm. And so I guess the, the military police's, um, policy or however, however you want to say that was Mm -hmm. because we were in the same unit, then this is a a chain of command issue that needs to be dealt with on that level. And so they kind of wiped their hands of it. Of course, there was the record of the call that I made to the police. Um, But as far as anything else, there's nothing in the, in the police record. It's all the unit record, but those, the unit doesn't have to keep records like that unless they discipline somebody and they actually disciplined both of us. What? Yeah, they've actually disciplined both of us. We both had like a no contact order. Like you can't talk to him and she can't talk to you. And if she's here, then you need to leave. If he's here, then you need to leave. And you can't go by her house and he can't go by his or your house. And it was like. (laughs) You're right. They did not handle that well at all no it didn't it did nothing because what i figured out later 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 on if you will through this process is that it only applied on post so if i was off post i was out you know in the regular city Mm -hmm. at the commissary or anything he would show up then but there was nothing i could do about it because there was no criminal record there was no order of protection there was no restraining order there was only a military no contact order so he just pretty much assaulted you and absolutely nothing happened to him even after you reported it. Yeah. And even if I don't report, but you were brave enough. You like, well, you had your reasons, not that they're not brave, but like you had your reasons that you decided to report. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you did that. And then absolutely nothing happened to him except he was told kind of just don't go around her. And then you were told that too. It wasn't even just him. Oh, but we still had to work together though. That's the thing too. We were still at work together. We were still in the same unit. So, I mean, it wasn't like we could avoid each other all the time, regardless of the order. It was just one of those things. If I was in the chow hall, then he would have to leave. If he was in the chow hall and I walked in there, then I would have to leave. Uh, You had to face your, your, your perpetrator on a daily basis. All the time. All the time. Every morning at every morning at PE formation. Every morning at five, at six thirty or six o'clock in the morning when we did PT formation, he was there. I can't um, imagine that. But if he would violate and I would report the violation to the chain of command, then I would be um, 
having to be given a corrective training. You're, you're imagining that it wasn't, it wasn't actually that that happened. It was that that's, he was probably just accidentally there. Oh, um, he got lots of leeway. He got lots and lots of leeway. And then, um, it was finally, uh, I had found a female chaplain within our regiment that I talked to her and she kind of put her foot down with the chain of command and it got a little bit better after that. But I finally mm-hmm. got to the period where I could reenlist. Mm-hmm. And, uh, when I went to re I wasn't going to reenlist. I was going to get out of the military, but when I talked to the recruiter, I could reenlist almost a year in advance and reenlist to get away from Fort Knox. Oh, so you had to move. You you were like, oh, how can I get out of here? So I have two, I have two questions now. How, how did you survive that? Like, how did you feel every day seeing him? And how did you, how did you survive that? Like just day in, day out, like seeing this person that assaulted you and having to work with them. And then the military absolutely not having your back at all. Uh, I, the only thing I can say is like keeping myself in that moment versus allowing myself to uh, move forward in any kind of time frame. Does that make sense? Like if I'm only paying attention to what's going on right here in this moment and I'm not paying attention to what might happen in five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever, um, it's a, it's more manageable um, because you can really allow yourself to get depressed and get, um, um, really, really dark places if you allow yourself to envision what's going to be happening in the future. Because in that situation, I could have let myself be like, I'm going to be here 10 years from now looking at this same man's face every day. Mm-hmm. But instead of allowing myself to move forward in that time, in, a, in time, if you will, um, I just stayed in like, what am I doing in two minutes? Mm-hmm. Um, and focusing on the next move versus um, any type of long-term thing. That makes sense to you. That makes perfect sense. It's actually excellent advice. So, um, okay, did you ever have any more like run-ins with the guy? Did he ever bother you ever again? Oh yeah, he had all kinds of smart things to say because it almost did feel like because he was a male and it was a, a very male dominant. There was only maybe I think, if I'm correct, there's only like four or five females out of fifteen hundred um, within that unit. So it was a very, very small, and it was almost like a smug thing that he knew, like, yeah, like I did this and what? Yeah. And now what? Like, um, essentially it sounds like, you know, because he was able to just do whatever, get away with all of this and this pretty much good old boys club environment that he just felt like, you know, really smug and like, it doesn't even matter. And that's a horrible message that they sent to you, the survivor, you know, so I I could see exactly why you were like, I need to just get out of here. So you were able to reenlist and then that reenlistment meant you could, you could relocate. Yes. Yes. What happened with that? Uh, I relocated to uh, Fort Campbell, Kentucky, the, um, and uh, from there, you know, 
I want to say it like this. This is how I'm trying to put it. It was almost like an opportunity to reinvent oneself Mm -hmm. Um, because, you know, at Fort Knox prior to all of the the weirdness and the the, uh, sexual assault and all the just the stuff that went with that, um, I did have a different mentality. So when I was going to move and I knew that this was going to be a a clean slate type of thing, um, it was a period of reinvention. So when I, when I got there, you know, things that I would have tolerated within my life uh, prior to that experience, mm-hmm. I no longer tolerated. Um, I no longer accepted that this was something that was okay and that this was all right, that people could get away with this type of thing. Right. Um, and so it was a, a period of reinventing oneself. Um, and I got very fortunate that at Fort Campbell, um, it's a, it's a, a, a very large division. Um, and so I had a, a more opportunity, if you will, there um, to get away from that crap, that type of situation. Oh, that's good. And um, I also kind of grew a backbone a little bit too, because mm-hmm. again, like I said, prior to uh, the sexual assault, there was a lot more things that I would have tolerated. So as soon as that happened, um, I started redefining what I would allow and what I wouldn't. That makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. It's like, somehow from that it was a catalyst to to make you even stronger as a person you had to be in order to protect yourself kind of like a you know like a defense mechanism oh yeah absolutely absolutely Mm -hmm. but what i will say in that too is that it did work for several years and it, it it sustained me throughout the rest of the career that i did have but now that now what i'm finding is that um, I actually don't let a lot of people close at all because um, I had to become that that a different type of person to deal with that situation. Now I need to. F- there's it's another challenge within life. Now I need to learn how to not be that way mm-hmm. um, and be a truer form of myself, um, mm-hmm. regardless of what happened. If that makes any sense, it makes perfect sense. I think everyone could understand that very well. um, So you said the rest of your military career was pretty good. Oh yeah. 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 I've, I've met a lot of really, really great people. Um, I've got to be a part of a lot of good situations and good countermeasures. And if you want to call them countermeasures, Mm -hmm. Um, my last deployment was hurricane Harvey. And um, I just simply got to help people. Uh, You know, we were, um, dispensing supplies, helping them rebuild, um, re-educating people on, you know, how to, uh, survive hurricane situations and what to do next time. So I think that was actually a really good high point to end their career, if you will, because it was a humanitarian mission, which military don't get to do that very often. Uh And, um, it was strictly about helping versus defending. Yeah. I love that. That sounds amazing just to be able to have been a part of that and to help people in that situation. It's wonderful. And you're right. It's, it's hard to, um, you don't often get to be part of a humanitarian mission. So right. no. no, some people never get to see that it's all combat or, or, or defensive mm-hmm. stuff. Okay. So now you've had a, pretty good go the rest of your military experience, which is wonderful to hear. How was your transition out? I would say that was probably the most difficult because, um, I joined the military 18 years old. So 
everything that I knew as an adult came from the military. Um, And so small things like um, I joined the police department after I I left the military completely. And uh, they would ask me things like, well, what do you think about this health coverage and this retirement benefit and what dental and Geico versus um, Affleck and all this stuff. And I'm kind of just looking at them like, I have no idea about any of this. Um, Going to the doctor for me throughout my entire life has been, I show up at the clinic and they see me. That's Mm -hmm. it. Um, So making an appointment and then having the specialist, I mean, like all these things that you should know as an adult, Mm -hmm. you actually kind of don't know as an adult because the military system is completely different um, Mm -hmm. than a civilian system. So it was, it was pretty, um, it's a learning curve. It's just a learning curve Uh, for fortunate for myself. You know, I'm a hundred percent with VA, so I don't have to worry about some of all those uglier Mm -hmm. things like health insurance and so forth. But um, it was a very, very, very difficult transition, I would say. And I I, I cling to um, my volunteer work with DAV and with the FW um, to compensate for those types of things. You know, as military, Mm -hmm. we're kind of used to these types of people. Right. Um, And so when you leave the military and you're exposed to all of these new things, um, you can sometimes retreat back into um, old ways and VFW and V and DAV are, are, are absolutely, absolutely, uh, great organizations to volunteer with. It'll give you a, um, a time away from civilian life where you just get to be a military person again for a little while. Um, but then you also get good advice from those people who have already been there and already transitioned and know, um, exactly what you're going through and how to help you and can give you some excellent advice. So, um, that would probably be my biggest, um, tip to anybody who is about to get out, even though you're going to get out and you want to get away from the military as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, also remember that there's military veterans that are still there to help you, um, through some of these volunteer organizations. That is great advice. I mean, I know that I had a really difficult transition, um, getting out and it wasn't until I sort of got on my feet and I started like giving back to the veteran community that I started to feel kind of like whole again and sort of able to move forward in life. So I always encourage people to, you know, help other veterans. And it's, I didn't, it never occurred to me to join an organization. I did join the American Legion um, sort of later into that. And I was a part of that in Illinois for a few years. But um, as far as like volunteer work, I didn't do any volunteer work with them. All of my work that I've done with veterans is just sort of like friends or friends of friends or people I meet that are veterans that are in need or they don't know something. I'm like, Oh, well, this is how you do this. And then you need to do that. And like, and it just ends up that, you know, you end up helping them. And, um, I agree with that. Just definitely giving back. And especially if you're, you're suffering with a trauma, like if you're facing a trauma and you're dealing with a trauma or working through it, or you, you're living with PTSD, I find that um, helping other veterans can be really, really cathartic with dealing with those issues too. So um, once you got out, what was life like for you once you started to adapt to being a civilian again? 
Um, I thought I had it all kind of, all kinds of figured out. I thought, Oh, this is, you know, um, smooth sailing. Once you figure out like all those little odd things, like I was saying, the insurance and, mm-hmm. and, um, things that the military just automatically kind of took care of, of things for you. But what I figured out was that that's not always <laughs> how it mm-hmm. goes. Um, um, you know, I got into a relationship after I left the military and my, my husband and I, my first husband and I had divorced, um, and he was a military guy too. So that, that was all we really knew. Mm-hmm. Um, and that ended very, very badly, oh, <laughs> very, no. very badly. Yeah. And so, um, I think I thought it was great. And then I had some road bumps and now I'm just back in a, a place where I have road bumps, but, um, I do know how to handle them. I'm, I think I'm handling them well, as mm-hmm. can be expected. I think most women who have had military sexual trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, we already have issues with relationships. That might be unfair to say because um, even men with post-traumatic stress disorder have issues with the relationships. That's just something that I think military people deal with in general. Right. And I don't think it's fair to say that you know um, the, the the personal relationship issue is a military um, sexual trauma female specific um, mm-hmm. uh, type of thing because I know that there's a lot of males out there that have issues with personal relationships and um, after I left the military you know I got into a relationship with a civilian and I thought oh you know I'm completely acclimated now to civilian life I got a civilian boyfriend civilian <laughs> life all of this stuff. And, uh, at one point, um, I knew that something was going on is that, that, that gut instinct, that intuition mm-hmm. that all of us have, I just knew something was happening. I knew something was not right. And, um, eventually I found, um, uh, that my husband, the civilian husband, um, was hurting my daughters. Goodness. Yeah. And so, um, I immediately called police. Um, I let the the authorities handle it from that point. I removed my kids from the situation. I tried to like, you know, um, damage control as best as I could. And I think this is about almost a year, a little over a year out from that incident. And I still feel like I'm doing damage control. It's just been chaos. Just straight chaos. Imagine like, what you must be going through with your daughters having been in a situation like that. Well, and I, I could allow myself to go down that little really dark road about why me and how did this happen and this and that and everything. But what I, I had, I've been trying to focus on is that I've been in a similar position as they were being, you know, um, uh, attacked or assaulted by somebody being, mm-hmm mistreated by somebody and I can allow myself to go there, but I'm not going to because these girls are watching me. Right. If I'm okay and I make it okay and I continuously try to work towards their betterment, um, that's going to be best for them and myself because I'm not only am I working through the trauma that they might've experienced, it was kind of traumatic for myself to, uh, to right to have to find those types of things and then have to go through legal proceedings and everything, um, for that. So, and, uh, my youngest child, weirdly enough, um, is his biological child. So of course now we have one child that has no, no parent. Um, I'm in the process of having his, uh, parental rights terminated. So, um, that's another challenge too. So there's several, <laughs> I know I'm laughing at it, but there's several different challenges. Um, even now as a civilian that I'm having to work out with the experience that I gained from the military. Right. 
So um, you mentioned before Mm -hmm. that you had been in two mass shootings. (laughs) Yeah. Which is crazy. Okay, because I'd be terrified to have been in one. And I don't know how, like, you're probably, I don't know if you're, like, unlucky or, like, the luckiest woman alive. Because how does that happen? What What's the story with those? You know, I, I don't know how to say that either. I always say unlucky. October 23rd, 2009. Um, I won't get too much into detail with that just yet. We might have to edit a little bit, but, mm-hmm. um, I just come back from a funeral, military funeral. Um, and I just got back to Fort hood and it was one of those things like I need to start my life moving forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also kind of juggling the fact that maybe I should take some time and figure this out, kind of adjust to this, um, mm-hmm. new life, if you will. Uh, but in the end I said, screw it. It's kind of like all military, like I need to get on with this stuff. We don't have time to be, you know, dealing with emotional stuff. And so I decided to go to Fort Hood that day. And uh, that was the day of the Fort Hood shooting. Um, oh my goodness. Uh, when Hassan came on to Fort Hood and, um, you know, killed about 13, technically 14, because one of the females was pregnant um, that was killed in that shooting. That's great. That's and um, I think at that time, I just had so much going on in my life. I had just buried a very significant person to me. Um, I just got back from his funeral the day before. Um, and then the day that I, I get back to Fort Hood was the Fort Hood shooting. I had so much on my plate that I just kind of like put those incidents, incidents to mm-hmm. the side. Like there's so much here that I'm not dealing with this. Mm-hmm. I am not dealing with this. And um, I absolutely did. I allowed myself to kind of like a, a Vietnam veteran. You hear about those Vietnam veterans that they don't show any signs of post-traumatic stress disorder or anything like that till 10, 15, 20, 30 years later. That's exactly what I did. I put that shooting and the, that death in a box and I put it to the side and was like, at some point in my life, I'll deal with it. Just not now. Yeah. Wow. I can um, imagine. Oh yeah. Um, and I was actually pregnant at the time of the Fort Hood shooting too. So there was that aspect too, you know, I was, um, six, about six months pregnant. And so uh, I was dealing with also getting ready to, you know, welcome a new baby and, um, adjusting my family into that new child, new child and family and everything else. There was a lot going on. Um, and I, I was required to do some of the debriefings and this and that with the Fort Hood shooting. And, um, Many years later, I actually became friends with one of the police officers. We'll we'll talk about that. Um, uh, one of it's hard to you can already see it in my face, right? <clears throat> I'm starting to go back into that. It's hard to do that because because um, when you start talking about stuff like this, your your mind actually does go back into that time frame, which right now I can't do because you know this is this is future life, anyways. Um, I got it. Totally. It, it was, it was a very difficult time. Um, I had a lot of issues with being around other soldiers, which, um, that should be a home for you. Right. You know, as a military person, as a military veteran, um, you should 100% always feel like if you're around another veteran, you're around another military personnel, you're good. You've got somebody that's got your back right there. That's not the case for me anymore. Because Hassan was a military, um, a a soldier um, who decided to turn on his own people 
for whatever reason we won't discuss, right. you know? Um, and so that actually kind of tore a piece of that comfort, mm-hmm. um, protection and, um, sense of solidarity that I once had with the military. Um, and that actually kind of made me also uh, a little bit more of a, um, a feisty person. Does that make sense? Right. Like now not only has one, a military member assaulted me, sexually assaulted me. Mm-hmm. Um, now I've had a, a U.S. army soldier come at and try and kill, um, me i'm not the target of his attack right i certainly could have been a casualty in that that situation because um 13 people dead is not something to gawk at it's not Mm -hmm. something to um forget so um i think there's been a lot of challenges (laughs) a lot of challenges and then um i know i was just kind of dealing with my son a little bit but um his birthday is august 4th and so August 3rd, we had a little birthday party planned for him and his friends at the pool here at my apartment complex. He had a Woody doll mm-hmm. um, and it has the drawstring where you pull the drawstring and it says, there's a snake in my boots. Oh, my um, has that. <laughs> as, I, yeah, as I'm opening that package, I accidentally cut the drawstring mm-hmm. and it doesn't work anymore. So I told my son, I said, okay, let's leave it alone. Let's see if we can take it back to Walmart. We can exchange it for a Woody. This, you know, this drawstring is not perfect. And so, um, usually, I would go to the Walmart, um, another Walmart. But this day, because I had already looked online, there wasn't a Woody doll in stock on that Walmart. So I went to the Cielo Vesta Walmart um, yeah. here in El Paso, and we're at the the uh, customer. Uh, customer service trying to exchange this Woody doll when the shooting started uh, in the Walmart. It's terrifying. And With so fun and he's four, right? Just like mine. But you know what? I, I, I love it too, because first let's, let's look at this from the, 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 the forehead shooting. Mm-hmm. You have all these people that are like, oh, I would have been carrying concealed carry and I would have stopped the shooter your brain doesn't comprehend things that quickly. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> your, your brain doesn't work that way when you're in a civilian Walmart or a civilian Fort, not necessarily you're in garrison Fort hood or you're in a civilian Walmart in El Paso. Your brain doesn't function like that. Like, Oh, they're shooting. There must be a mass shooter. Let me go right. save the day. It doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you, also add on the fact that you have your children or your family in that Walmart Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, your brain doesn't work that way. Cause my first thought, regardless of what the heck was going on, it's like, I need to get my child out of here. Mm -hmm. I need to get my child. Nothing else phases your mind. Um, and no, I was not carrying, but even if I had been carrying, my thought process would have been, I need to get my child out of here, mm-hmm. not grab my child and run in and, and stop the shooter. Right. It doesn't work that way. The employees started pushing us towards the automotive section. At one point we ended up on, a um, inside of a semi trailer, mm-hmm. like the, where they actually, you know, load all the equipment and it has the draw door. And, um, the thought process, you know, now looking back on it was, they were just trying to hide everybody mm-hmm. and keep them, 
um, out of the line of sight, out of the line of fire. When they finally released everybody, it was one of those things like, okay, here's my name and my information if the police need me. Now I'm leaving. Like I'm, I'm just going. Mm-hmm. Uh, my car was towards the back of the building, um, away from the, the crime scene, if you will. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we got to leave pretty early. I think we probably spent about a good week, week and a half, to where we just did not want to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, my son still came shortly after that. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I had friends that were bringing groceries and stuff like that because we just did not, um, did not want to leave. Um, now it's getting a little bit better. Um, we've seen my therapist a couple times, me and my mm-hmm. son together. Oh, that's so um, good. Yeah, and we're we're getting we're getting better at going out in public, but Walmart will probably always be a place oh where you, you never want to go. I almost just, don't even want to go. Like that's yeah. just so the stress and, level must have been like I can not I can just empathize with the stress level and thinking about if it were me with my little boy and how like I do drills with my kids <laughs> like okay here we're going into the grocery store you need to know where the exits are you need to like know places where you can hide you know what I mean don't try to my 13 year old I'm like don't try to be a hero <laughs> you know if we are separated in the store you need to know like and we have to talk about these things regularly right. So I can just imagine, uh, sometimes I don't want to leave my house anyway. I, I, I can just imagine how much. The must world be. has too many people. Uh-huh. <laughs> There's way too many people out there. Like, a lot of veterans just do not want to deal with it. I'm mm-hmm. the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes I just do not want to deal with people in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was funny, you, you were mentioning drills with your children and so forth. My mm-hmm. daughter, um, when the Fort Hood shooting was happening, she was in La Paz ISD at the time they released kids home from school mm-hmm. on the bus that day. Well, the parents were far from being released from Fort Hood because Fort right. Hood was locked down for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I finally got a hold of somebody to go check on my kids. Um, and my daughter had the whole house barricaded kids <laughs> furniture in front of doors. She was like, I didn't know what was going on, but I just didn't want, I wasn't going to take any risk. Mm-hmm. Smart <laughs> girl. <laughs> well, she was only like, I think she was like 10 or 11 at the time. Oh she was my gosh. A smaller kid. Mm-hmm. Um, her six year old sister was with her and uh, she was like, Oh heck no, we're not doing this. I don't know what's going on, but I'm putting the furniture in front of the door. <laughs> we're going to be safe. We're going to be safe. And I did. I had one of those moments. I was like, that's my baby. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's amazing now because, you know, this is almost like actually this um, November uh, 5th will be the 10 year from the Fort Hood shooting. And um, I think about that. Yeah, she was about 10 at the time. She's 20 now. Like this, you know, it's a... um, it's, it's it's weird how time flies once you it does yeah it just <laughs> it feels like that was just yesterday too with us talking about it oh yeah it feels like it was yeah. yesterday it absolutely was it seems like it was but yeah it's been 10 years it's kind of wow. crazy to think. i didn't realize it's been that long yeah and he's still sitting on death row yeah, I know that's not right his hunger strikes or whatever he does you know <sighs> come on <laughs> I don't know. Um, there was a, a, a meme recently on Facebook that had circulated that Hassan was, you know, going to get um, um, executed soon. And everybody's like, yes, yes, yes. I was like, 
the U.S. government hasn't hasn't executed anybody on death row since like the seventies. Let's be mm-hmm. realistic. He actually might die on death row. Mm-hmm. That's just something we're going to have to deal with. That's not anything that's within our control. That that's just right. what it is. You know, yeah, be upset about that, but that might be our reality. As uh, long as he's not free, right? You right. know, like I mean, whether they he gets executed or not, as long as he's not free, as long as he never sees the light of day, yeah. then that's at least something. It's something, right? Exactly, exactly. And then even the Walmart mass shooter, he's still alive too. Uh-huh. So I'm like, I mean, I, you can ask me about death penalty. I believe in the death penalty, but you know, in all reality, they might live their life out on death row. Mm, you know what's crazy to me? <laughs> Beyond our control. Uh, that these guys are like mass shooters, yet they're still alive. And then you see on the news, like unarmed men being killed. Right. Especially in, in the African-American community. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, you know, cause I don't, I don't understand that. I'll never, I, I don't understand that how that works these men were horrible horrible people they tried to take the lives of many they did take the lives of many they didn't even get to take the lives of as many as they wanted you know and yet they're alive it just doesn't i don't don't understand that i'll never understand that but i will tell you this it neither of them should ever see the light of day in my opinion you know it's just it's because even the people like the the people who are alive like yourself thank god now you've got to deal with the trauma of that and that can be a lifelong process so it's it damages everybody mm-hmm. even the people that they don't take the life of so it's it's just horrible it's a horrible thing but, but i i kind of reflect back because when i was in the police academy you know we had a, a sergeant that would always talk to us about Either you have to make the decision for yourself as an individual, not as a police officer, but as an individual when you're off duty, whether you're going to carry a weapon or not. Some departments will require a police officer carry off duty. Some do not. He's like, but you have to take the the initiative for yourself. If you're in a Walmart with your kid exchanging a Woody doll, the mass shooting happens. Do you want to be the hero with your four-year-old under your arm trying to take out a mass shooter and then your child be the victim when uh-huh. you could have been a good witness? Uh-huh. You could have been a good witness and protected yourself and your family. Like you have to make the decision for yourself. Like, do I want to be a hero or do I want to have my family? Uh-huh. Like which one's going to make you feel or um, satisfy your, your, you know, <laughs> whatever you want to call it, in the end of the day. And at, at, at the end of the day, I don't care about nothing else so long as my family's good. But that's my job. I'm their mother. Right. You know, I get that. Yeah, if you're a father, that's your job, is to keep your kids alive and make sure that they make it to adulthood. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you have to make your decision. That was my decision. It will always be my decision that my kids are going to come first, regardless of anything else. If there's trauma that's involved with the situation, whether it be a mass shooting or, you know, a, a sexual trauma, a sexual mm-hmm. assault in some way, my children will be the priority. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because even with that sexual assault of my children, I had a lot of people, I would have killed him. Okay. But you weren't in that situation. Right. You weren't there. They lose both their parents. 
Exactly. I said, my, my only thought process was to get through this, this as best as possible. And we will work through the trauma later. Mm-hmm. That is something that we will deal with later. And we're dealing with it now, but, um, that's always going to be my opinion. I don't care what's going on. My kids are coming first. We'll deal with the trauma later. It mm-hmm. probably is going to suck, but yes. the only trauma could, always sucks, but there could be, it could be worse because we could that's have right. had we could have a death right now, but that's not the case, thankfully. And we can move forward and we'll deal with the trauma as it comes. Like I said, in the beginning, one minute, sometimes at a time, two minutes at a time, and then I'll work up to three minutes to an hour to a day to a week, you know, whatever we need to do. That's just what we're going to do to, to get through all of this. So. Well, you know what? I have got to tell you, Callie, that I think you're just the most incredible person. Everything that you've been through, and then you just still have like such grace and strength and such a positive attitude that is just like mind blowingly amazing. And I really have to thank you for taking the time to come and share your story on this podcast because you have been dropping knowledge this whole time and just leaving these pearls of wisdom on how to cope and how to get through things. And everyone listening could hear everything you've gone through and then see the kind of person you are. I'm going to ask you one more question Mm -hmm. before we wrap this up. You've given us a lot, a lot of really good advice, but is there anything that you want to leave everybody with before we go? Just don't quit. I know I've said that so many times. Um, uh, my really, really, really um, dear person that was killed in action, his unit is 160th Night Stalkers. Their, their motto is Night Stalkers Don't Quit. And that's something that I've always kept with me. Um, regardless of what's going on, regardless of what you're facing and what you know tomorrow might look like, you just don't quit. There's not an option in that. Um, and like I said, if you have to take it down to let's deal with this one minute at a time and work our way up to maybe five minutes and 10 minutes the next day and the next week, that's fine. Whatever you have to do to get through that um, experience, that's what you got to do. So just don't quit. That's all I can say. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. That is amazing advice and easy to follow advice. Very easy. (laughs) If you really take it to heart, right? Mm -hmm. And if you don't quit, you can get through anything. And eventually, if you don't quit, you'll win. So um, I love that advice so much. I want to thank you so much for being a part of this podcast and sharing your story and just being the wonderful, incredible person that you are. So thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me today. And with that, you guys, we're going to wrap it up. Thank you. Thank you for listening and being a part of this podcast with me and listening to our veteran sisters share their stories. I appreciate you so much. Thank you for listening. I love you guys and I'll talk to you next time.